Hi, this is Lucinda. I'm a healthcare accreditation coordinator as well as an RN. I have no affiliation with the Joint Commission at all, but today I'm going to try to talk to you a little bit about the Joint Commission. Do you know why we don't call the Joint Commission JCO anymore? That's right, we don't call it JCO anymore. That's not in the now. Um, in December of 2006, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations, frequently officially abbreviated as JCO, announced that to better reflect its expanding scope of services, it was shortening its name to just the Joint Commission, or TJC. The change was effective January 8, 2007, and served to eliminate the JCO abbreviation. Now, people are going to know what you mean when you say JCO, but if JCO hears you saying that, they're going to think you're a little bit in the past. Another commonly asked question that I'm getting lately is, do you know why the National Patient Safety Goals aren't numbered um, in numerical sequence? Well, the Joint Commission established its National Patient Safety Goal program in 2002, and the original National Patient Safety Goals were numbered sequentially, and in the years following, the Joint Commission continued to add and revise the National Patient Safety Goals on a yearly basis. In 2009, however, the National Patient Safety Goals underwent an extensive review um, designed to streamline the program and focus on high-priority topics related to patient safety and quality care. This included decreasing the number of National Patient Safety Goals by deleting certain requirements and incorporating others. Um, into actual standards. So to minimize confusion, requirements that remain national patient safety goals were not renumbered. So for example, the same goal that was number seven in 2008 is going to be number seven now, even though there's no four, five, and six. If you notice that in your standards guide, I thought that was a little fun fact for you. As we are nearing our organizational survey, I wanted to talk to you again about how to work with surveyors. You want to make sure to keep the conversation professional. Ask questions if you don't understand and never argue with the surveyor. Be professional and use appropriate language and behaviors, even though you may feel frustrated. Be truthful. If you don't know the answer, say so. But also remember that you may use any resources available to you, such as internet policies, department resources, or your own manager. Keep your answers focused on specific um, answers to the question. Whenever possible, answer in your own words and keep your answers short and to the point. Keep it short and simple. Support your coworkers. If you are present when someone else is being interviewed, Feel free to add any relevant information without being intrusive. Respond to questions with confidence. You know the answer better than anyone. Speak freely about all the great things we do. And there are so many. I know it's hard because it's about as fun as getting your teeth clean, but try to relax. Surveyors are physicians, nurses, medical technologists, engineers, and others who have worked in hospitals. So they've been there. They know what you're going through. Always be honest, don't lie, don't misrepresent. Lying cannot uh, be tolerated and it can cause an uh, organization to lose its accreditation. And just as in sports, success is dependent on teamwork. Excellent patient care is no different. Your communication and interaction with other members of the healthcare team is critical to providing excellent care for the patient. 
Moving along from this topic, we are going to move along to some frequently asked questions answered by the Joint Commission that I hear quite a bit as well. Most of these are available on the website um, under, of course, the standard frequently asked questions. So here is a question that I got asked recently that the Joint Commission answered. Is there an expectation for individuals passing patient trays at mealtime to use alcohol-based hand rub in between each room? Okay, so if you're passing trays, you need to make sure you use your two patient identifiers before passing that tray. It's very important. And they will observe you, and we have been personally cited on that before. But moving along to the actual question. If the person passing the food tray has or is likely to have direct contact with the patient, the answer is yes, because both the CDC and WHO guidelines state that hand hygiene is required after direct contact. Both guidelines also say the individual should decontaminate hands after contact with inanimate objects in the immediate vicinity of the patient. But this is identified as a Category 2 by the CDC. I will say... Um, the electronic hand washing um, devices that make sure that everybody's in compliance. If you just get in the area of the patient's bed, like it's a circle circumference with uh, around the patient's bed, it'll go off and it'll make you wash your hands. Um, but anyway, back to what the Joint Commission is saying. As such, while compliance with the CDC guidelines is recommended for individuals passing meal trays who do not make direct contact with patients, it is not required. In contrast, the WHO guidelines require hand hygiene after contact with the patient's environment. So it's more or less, it's gonna be up to your um, facility's policy on this. So it's, a, it's an infection control question, but it's a very good one. But in general, if they're not touching anything in the patient's vicinity, they're just dropping off a tray, they should be fine. But always, always check your policy and ask your infection control nurse. In general, I don't answer our facility's personal questions on this podcast because it goes out to so many people. This information just gives you a kind of idea of what we should be looking at in our policies and make sure that we're following guidelines and seeing what everybody else is doing. Um, so another question, do we have to use alcohol-based hand products? Um, accredited organizations are required to provide healthcare workers with uh, readily accessible alcohol-based hand products. However, use of such a product by any individual healthcare worker is not required. The guidelines describe when this type of cleaner may be used instead of soap and water. If a health healthcare worker chooses not to use it, then soap and water should be used instead. I know when I was still on the floor, I preferred soap and water even though it took a little bit longer you know, because you have to go over the sink and, you know, it's not just, you're not just rubbing your hands together. You pumping the soap, you're doing your 10 to 15 seconds, um, depending on your facility. And, you know, then you're drying your hands all the way. Anyway, I prefer that personally because my hands used to break out from the alcohol. My, I had a lot of trouble with my skin. Saying this though, I just want to make it clear if a patient has, um, C. diff or something like that, you should have to use soap and water and not the alcohol. All right, so moving along. 
This next question is, again, it's going to be more up to your infection control nurse and your facility and what they decide. But let's talk about it because this is, this is good information to know, and this way you know where we're getting our resources when we make policies. The CDC guidelines says that healthcare personnel should not wear artificial nails and should keep natural nails less than one quarter inch long if they care for patients at high risk of acquiring infections like patients in intensive care units or in transplant units. The WHO guidelines prohibit artificial nails and extenders for all healthcare workers. Will Joint Commission actually be requiring this? So again, each organization must follow the IA, IB, and IC recommendations from the guideline it chooses, which is gonna be either the CDC or WHO, okay? Therefore, if WHO is chosen by your facility or organization, no direct care providers should have artificial nails or extenders. If CDC is chosen, providers in high-risk areas must not wear artificial nails. So many organizations following CDC guidelines have chosen to expand the ban on artificial nails, nail gel, gel colors, etc., to all care providers in the interest of safety because going above and beyond never hurt anyone. Regarding the length of natural nails, each organization may choose its own approach since the level of recommendation in both the CDC and WHO guidelines is two, thereby making compliance optional. And I will say it's the same way for um, AORN. They give you recommendations and they have like triaged these recommendations. Like, is it a requirement? Is it a recommendation? And they make it very clear. So when you're researching something, you can pick out, this is a requirement. We have to do this. Or they're recommending this, but maybe it doesn't hold that much weight yet because the research is not there. So in addition to the CDC and WHO organization's requirements, um, we always need to incorporate evidence-based guidelines for um, specialized and procedural areas. Um, according to AORN, AAMI, and APIC, these are uh, additional examples of resources for such guidelines, like I mentioned. And they are very, very clear on what is a recommendation and what is a requirement and what weight that holds for each. Are you bored to tears yet? Just being honest. I know some of this, you know, it. You have to be like a research junkie to really enjoy something like this. But these are questions that I've been asked and I want to I want to get the information out there because you know a lot of times I'm contacted and people want a yes or no answer and there's oh, there's a lot of gray. You know, there's a lot of gray. I always want to recommend the stricter um I always want to enforce the stricter uh guidelines for infection control and safety, but that's just me. That's just from being in the military, I, w I want the top tier of care. I want the ultimate. Now, sometimes that's not always um, financially affordable for an organization, or there are different reasons why people wouldn't want to do that because, you know, there's a learning curve. We have to put the education out there. This is something completely different to our workflow. So it's important to take those considerations into account too when you're trying to change a policy and or answer um, a guidelines or requirement question. All right, so the next question, would it be acceptable to complete the pre-procedure verification process? See, 
UP-01001 in the operating room rather than a pre-procedure holding area? Yes, in cases where the patient is not held in a pre-procedure area for preparation, it would be acceptable to complete the verifications and checklist in the operating room. Hospitals should identify the timing and location of the pre-procedure verification and site marking based on what works best for their own unique circumstances up to the organization. The frequency and scope of the pre-procedure verification process will depend on the on the type and complexity of the procedure. Keep in mind that the final timeout, C um, UP 010301, must occur immediately prior to making the incision with involvement of all immediate members of the procedure team. The final timeout participants must include, for example, the individual performing the procedure, the anesthesia providers, the circulating nurse, the operating room technicians, and other active participants who will be participating in the procedure from the beginning and make sure everyone stops for the timeout, all activity. They must stop. They can't be walking around doing things, prepping things out still. You will absolutely get cited for something like this. So the universal protocol is based on the following principles. Wrong person, wrong site, and wrong procedure surgery can be and must be prevented. A robust approach using multiple strategies is necessary to achieve the goal of always conducting the correct procedure on the correct person at the correct site. Active involvement and use of effective methods to improve communication among all members of the procedure team are important for success. To the extent possible, the patient and, as needed, the family are involved in the process. Consistent implementation of a standardized protocol is most effective in achieving safety. And I've talked about this um, in past podcasts as well, how much um, checklists actually do help and um, increase safety, although research is still up and down on that as, as it is with everything. And for my last question of today, food and drink in the clinic or hospital, where can staff have lunch? This is my most unfavorite topic, Um, just being a nurse and not having enough time to go and eat in the cafeteria sometimes. um, It's just hard. So I'm kind of loose on this when I do walk around because I do understand I want to see nurses drinking water and being able to eat if they need to because, you know, you need a fuel to get things done. You can't just go on an empty tank. And again, it's not always feasible to go all the way to the cafeteria to eat, right? Okay, so the safety of consuming food and drink in the medical clinic and laboratory is governed by OSHA's bloodborne pathogens and sanitation standards. And the Joint Commission wants hospitals and clinics to know it's ready to enforce those standards. So this is who we would look to for these kind of rules, right? OSHA. Joint Commission standards do not specifically address where staff can have food and drink in the work areas, including nursing and physician stations. I get asked this all the time. It's not going to be in your standards guide, folks. According to the Joint Commission written statement, instead, Joint Commission leadership standard LD040101 requires that healthcare organizations follow license requirements, laws, and regulations, including OSHA's blood-borne pathogen standard. Specifically, the Joint Commission said, 
OSHA's regulation prohibits the consumption of food and drink in areas where work involving exposure or potential exposure to blood or other potentially infectious or toxic materials exist, or where the potential for contamination of work surfaces exists. It probably seems like a no-brainer. No food in areas where it could come in contact with blood or other biologically hazardous material. But for extra clarity, the Joint Commission stresses that OSHA's regulation also prohibits consuming or storing food in areas where blood or other potentially infectious or toxic materials are located or stored, including the following areas. Refrigerators, cabinets, shelves, counters. Of course, OSHA and the Joint Commission like to keep the compliance um, on employers. So as a part of clarification, the Joint Commission pointed out that the healthcare organizations can define and establish safe eating areas for all staff members. That's where those hydration stations come from, right? OSHA does require that healthcare organizations evaluate the workplace to determine locations where potential contamination may occur and prohibit employees from eating and drinking in those areas. With that statement said, an employer's evaluation will determine what areas represent the risks for contamination from food and drinks. Based on this assessment, organizations can designate a safe space for staff to eat or drink. The Joint Commission asked healthcare organizations to use common sense when choosing places appropriate for employee meals and storage of food. For example, a clinic may determine that a particular nurse's station is separated from work areas that are subject to contamination, making occupational exposure at the station unlikely. Therefore, it would be reasonable to allow nurses to eat there, even if eating is prohibited at other nurses' stations. So that is just something to think about, right? If you get caught by a surveyor eating at, in a specific area, you might be able to speak to this better by hearing this information here. Conversely, some areas will be strictly off limits to food and drink containers. For example, it should be common sense that staff may not eat in any area where specimens are collected, processed, or stored. Keep in mind that while OSHA regulations apply to all healthcare facilities, states, and local health departments uh, may have additional requirements that healthcare organizations must comply with. That statement said, we have to use common sense, right? If the Joint Commission felt the need to clarify where staff can eat their lunch, there's obviously a need for training, both for safety officers and those who work under them. The standards don't just apply to food. If an area presents any possibility of contamination, contaminated blood or other substances coming into contact with living human tissue, all consumable, uh, consumable items, not just food, need to be kept away from the area. However, some employees still haven't got that message. Even though the standard may not make mention of specific exceptions, people working in these environments need to use common sense. The Bloodborne Pathogen Standard clearly states that no food or drinks should be inside the lab, but it makes no mention of gum chewing. <laughs> this is one of those areas that people try to, you know, work around. Well, I put the piece of gum in my mouth in the break room, and then I walked into the lab, and that's why I was chewing gum, so it's, it's okay, right? Not, not really. It's not really okay, but that's going to be dependent on what your organization decides is okay. It's really not. It's one of those gray areas. 
though, that, I mean, you may or may not get away with that. I mean, the OSHA rules also don't specifically state not to use, um, like, a cell phone in the lab, but they do talk about lip balm or manipulating contact lenses in the lab. I mean, just because there's that gray area doesn't mean employees can blow bubbles or text with impunity. It's not just about the rules being spelled out. Remember, um, one of the purposes of the standard is to minimize or prevent hand-to-face contact in a contaminated setting. Uh, It's clearly a best practice for many reasons not to chew gum gum or use a cell phone in the lab. But OSHA would view these practices as a violation of regulations, even though it's not clearly written directly. Just saying, that's how things are. So it's something to take a look at when you're looking things up and doing research. I'm going to end this today, kind of try to keep it short as I can. Um, I have all these resources for you. If you have a question, want me to send you some information, let me know. And until next time, have a great day.